Hello, I'm Scott Suskovic, Senior Pastor at Christ Lutheran Church. I want to invite you to check out our website, ChristELCA.org. And join us at worship. We have four different, very unique campuses. So glad you're here. Enjoy this podcast. Dear sisters and brothers in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to read to you um, a text from John chapter 11 before I get into the main text for today. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he said. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. It is the shortest verse in the entire Bible and the most favorite verse of all confirmation kids who have to pick one to memorize. <laughs> Jesus wept. The occasion is a funeral for his good friend Lazarus. So why the tears? Well, you know why. It's a funeral. It doesn't matter if the person's 90 years old or 9, 70 years old or 7. It's a time of tears. Oh, we know the person's in a better place. We know that the suffering has ended. We know that the tears are selfish. We know we can't bring him or her back. And yet we weep, as Jesus did, because we're going to miss this person. There's a hole. We're going to miss them at the dinner table. We're going to miss them at Christmas. We're going to miss them on vacation. We're going to miss them just talking in the kitchen. We're going to miss them lying next to us at night. And so we weep, as Jesus wept at a funeral. And here's the irony. Jesus knows how the story ends. Death is defeated. The grave is overwhelmed. Sin is erased. Eternal life is ours. Jesus knows how the story ends. And yet, Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Well, it could be um, to really show that he's fully human. Certainly 100% God, but at the same time, 100% a man still feels what we do. That's good. Uh, could be that Lazarus was indeed a very close friend. This one's different. This one's different. Jesus had close friends. What could be number three is that he was hurting for Mary and Martha, the sisters, putting their their brother Lazarus into the tomb. He wept because they were hurting. Could be. But when I read that short verse, I'm thinking Jesus wept because more than anyone else, Jesus hates death. 
Jesus hates death. Death was not part of the original plan. Death is not God's intent. The beginning there in Garden of Eden, it was perfect. It was shalom. Everything was working the way it was supposed to work. Death entered in through this fallen world. So every time there's a funeral, every time there are tears, we are reminded one more time that we're in this fallen state of imperfection in which we still weep at funerals. So Jesus wept, knowing full well that there will come a day in which those tears, at least tears of sadness, will be forever gone. What else? What else will be gone in heaven? What else will be missing in heaven? Because it's kind of a strange way to think about it, right? Because when we think about heaven, we think about what will be there. God will be there. We'll see him face to face. We will walk with our Savior. We'll be reunited with those who have gone before us. There'll be bliss. There'll be joy. Might there even be dogs? You're thinking yes. (laughs) What else? What else will not be there? Because when the Bible talks about what heaven is like, At least it talks a lot about what will not be there. And for that, I want to talk about our our main text for today, Revelation 21. Now, Revelation is a strange, difficult book to wrap our minds around, mostly because, mostly because people don't understand the genre. It's apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literally means the unveiling or the uncovering. It's revelation. It's not a, not a plural, just one. Revelation. And what John, the author, is revealing, revealing what is to come. And here's the difficulty. He has to explain the indescribable. He has to use the temporal to talk about eternity. He needs to use earthly images to talk about heavenly realities. And so it's filled with these um, exotic battles, with with bizarre images, with ethereal kind of uh, themes, none of which are to be taken literally. That's part of the genre of apocalyptic. So, for example, Revelation says that the streets will be paved with what? Gold. Really? 14 carat, 24 carat, what do you think? Probably not. But what does that image point us towards? It's about extravagance. It's about abundance. That there's so much of everything, they can even line the streets with gold. Or we go a little bit further, and um, it talks about the walls will be... uh, will be uh, studded with jewels, rubies, sapphire, emeralds, diamonds. Really? Are there going to be rubies in heaven? Probably not. But what it points to is there going to be some indescribable, over-the-top beauty that will be found in heaven. And then Revelation says 
that <coughs> this holy city is going to be 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles tall. Really? Is the heavenly city going to be a great big metropolitan area? Probably not. Probably not. But when we talk about 1,500 miles, we're talking New York to Omaha. So what it's really pointing to is that it's going to be big. It's going to be big. Don't worry about losing space. Don't worry about missing out. For God so loved the world. There's going to be enough room. All right? But again, when, when it talks about what heaven is like, oftentimes Revelation talks about what will not be there, what's missing. And for that, let's start out chapter 21. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Which always kind of bums me out. There's going to be no sea. <coughs> I love the water, and those of us who are water people, you go to the ocean, watch the sunrise or sunset. You go and do uh, trout fishing, fly fishing in, in the stream and can spend hours there. You go to the lake and sit in the dock and look at nothing. And every time we, we're surrounded by water, it's like a glimpse of heaven. And you're telling me there's going to be no sea, no water? Again, not literally. What does it point to? Remember, the author here of Revelation and most of the Bible are desert-dwelling Jews. It's those Phoenicians, those crazy Phoenicians who get in boats and go across the Mediterranean. The desert-dwelling Jews didn't do that. So when they talked about water, it was always in negative terms. Well, not always. So, like Genesis 1, the first thing God does, he separates the water, brings order to the water in creation. When the psalmist talks about the sea, it is the raging sea, it's the, it's the waves. When, when Job talks about the water, those, those Leviathan monsters are in the water. In the New Testament, Jesus has the calm, the, the storm on the water. And even though many of these disciples are fishermen, they hug the shore. Because when you go out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, bad things happen. So when the first thing about heaven that's missing, the sea will be no more. It's not the sea. It's chaos. There'll no longer be chaos and uncertainty and unpredictability in heaven There'll be some structure, some order. Things will make sense, much like it did in the Garden of Eden before the fall happened. Chaos will be no more. What else will not be in heaven? I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Picture that scene. At the wedding, everybody's seated. The wedding party is all in place. The organ modulates to a major key. The volume goes up. The pastor has everybody stand, and suddenly the back doors fling open. And there is the bride, beautifully dressed, perhaps the 
most expensive dress you'll ever own. And all eyes go right there, huh? All eyes go right to the back. And where do they go right after that? Right up to the groom. Just like that. I figured that now he's family, he's open target for sermon illustrations. Like a beautiful bride adorned for her husband. Now, does that mean Jerusalem's going to have a veil and a train and walked in by your dad? No, no. It means there will be no more ugliness. No more ugliness. No more ugliness of this world. No more foul parts of the corruption. No more stain of sin. Beauty will be restored because ugliness will be no more. What else will be missing? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. Again, literally, God's going to live next to us like that neighbor who cranks up his leaf blower at 7 a.m. on Saturdays, or comes over during dinner time looking for two eggs or a cup of sugar. Really? <laughs> no. Again, it points to what will not be there. What will not be in heaven is all the doubt, all the wondering, all the questioning. Where is God? Doesn't God care? Where is he? He should be here. Or does God even exist? All that doubt and question will be gone forever because we, we, we have more than just a glimpse, more than just a foretaste, more than just a sense of God's presence. He will be <clears throat> intensely present, overwhelmingly present in the gifts of heaven. And then finally it comes up and says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's it. That's it. It's a very intimate act, isn't it? to be that close to an individual, cradle their face in your hands and wipe away the tears. It's a very intimate act. Remember falling as a child, running inside, finding mom, you've got big crocodile tears. She's able to wipe those away and they're gone. How does she do that? They're gone. But then you go out and you play again, you skin your knees, and the, and the tears return. But what Revelation says about heaven, what will be missing there, is that when God wipes away those tears, they are gone. Again, at least the, the tears of sadness. They are gone forever. And why are they gone? Why are they gone? Let's take a look at the next text. Because there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older order of things has passed away. There'll be no more tears. Not just because there's no chaos and no ugliness. Not just because there's no more doubts and questions. Not just because there's no more mourning or sorrow. Not just because there's no more pain or suffering. But because death will be no more. Because death will be no more, the ultimate enemy. The reason that Jesus wept, 
not part of that created order. An intrusion into God's shalom, God's peace, God's order. Death will finally be the last one, the last enemy to be defeated. Now, what else won't be in heaven? There's so many things. There won't be any sun or moon because the glory of the Lord will shine around and darkness will be no more. Darkness, that source of fear, things going bump in the night. <clears throat> what else? There'll be no more temple. Which to the Jewish audience thought, wow, I need a temple to go to. You don't. Because the Lamb of God is everywhere. You are always in the presence of God. Everything now has been restored. And what's more, there won't be any doors or any gates to close because there will be no violence and no enemy and no dangers out there. We won't need the police force. We won't need an army because it's been restored. So at the end, when you talk about coming before the presence of God, even at a funeral, Jesus weeps. Because even though the vision is there, even though the promise is real, it's not yet. And so on this side of paradise, we continue to experience all the things that will be missing in heaven. But on this day, on this day, All Saints Sunday, we get a glimpse, another glimpse of the foretaste of the feast to come. We've already lit the ten candles for our ten saints, but we've got candles here as well. And if you want to, you can come up and we'll help you light a candle. You'll, put a, you'll bring them up here and put them on the stage or the communion rail. I know it's going to be crowded and it's going to be a little, you know, messy, but that's okay. But we do All Saints Sunday not to dredge up old wounds of the past, not to make people cry again, not to make the suffering and the, and, the, and the grief real once again, but we do it that even in the midst of the weeping, even as Jesus wept, we do it to realize that the victory is ours, that sin, death, and the devil have been destroyed, and there will come a day in which we will be in that place that's missing so much, Lacking so much, chaos, ugliness, doubt, fear, enemies. So even as we light candles, and even though the tears may come back today, I'm reminded what St. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. He said, oh, we grieve. As Christians, we still grieve. But our grief is different. We do not grieve as the unbeliever grieves. We don't grieve going to the grave and saying, well, that's it. We don't grieve saying you get X amount of years and then all is just a memory. We don't grieve and just leave that hole empty. Paul says we grieve, but we don't grieve as those do who have no hope. Because ours is not just a hope. The Bible calls it a sure and certain hope. That because Jesus lives, 
that because Jesus lives, you will live and I will live. And those ten saints, they also live. And one day, one day, all the ugliness of this world will be completely gone. As God comes close, wipes away all those tears because the final enemy of death has been destroyed. During this song, if you'd like to, you can, um, you can honor, you can remember one of those saints in your own life, knowing that even as you weep, so does Jesus, so does Jesus, until that day in which tears are no more. Thanks be to God.